This is Lost or Found, the podcast where we think about how we can live happier, healthier, and more fulfilled lives. And now here's the host of the show, Dr. Michelle Choi. Hello, podcast friends. Thank you for joining us today. We have psychologist Dr. Chris Farnbach on the show as we discuss loss and change. Dr. Farnbach has been on the show multiple times, and I seriously love our deep and moving conversations. In the past, we've talked about taking care of our brains, small t traumatizations, and guess what? She's also a badass who's technically an excommunicated Roman Catholic woman priest. She's also one of my heroes and my favorite psychologist. Hi, Dr. Farenbach. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Well, you're so welcome. I'm really glad to see you. (laughs) Me too. It's always a wonderful day if I get to see you. Bless your heart. (laughs) Me too. And I know you wanted to talk about loss and change, which I think is an amazing topic. What does this mean to you? Well, quite a lot. It's it's amazing what um, what loss is. It's not just if someone dies. It's it encompasses so many things. And I think I developed this interest because I was affected by loss in my early life, and it had a big impact on my life. I think it. Uh, caused some troubles, and it also guided me in terms of how, what I was going to pursue and what I would care about and what I would find meaningful. And so um, I remember as a senior in high school, I took a psychology class, and I wanted to investigate this topic, the impact of loss on children and so forth. So there was nothing. There was one, I think I had one citation. Not really a lot about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think at the time, this was even before Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was talking about death and dying. I believe it was before that. So it's not like people were even talking about death and loss. And, you know, death as the primary loss that people thought about was, you know, it's kind of a private thing. People never talked about it. You know, the way we talk about death and dying now is quite advanced. Um, and so uh, fast-forwarding... Um, I did a um, my thesis on in um, graduate school, my MDiv. I did that on loss and change related to surrender, death, and resurrection. Because um, I was studying a master theology and a master of divinity, mm-hmm. and then after that, I wanted to teach high school um, religious studies, and I taught a class on death and dying, and that opened up the world because, of course, you know, students at age, they want to hear about death, but you have to make it relevant to their lives. And most mm-hmm. of them hadn't experienced that, which is, you know, loss of other kinds, like loss of friends, loss of relationships, loss of a contest, loss of, you know, any number of things you can think about. And then I'm moving forward, and I'm still interested in loss and change and transition. Um, and I did my dissertation in... Um, graduate school on loss, HIV-related loss in the lives of uninfected gay men. Mm-hmm. Because what I'm thinking about is there's one thing, there's the loss. Some of these guys that I interviewed had lost no one that they knew, and others of them knew hundreds of people had died of HIV. 
But underneath this, I thought there was a loss of self-identity because in the early stages of HIV disease, when it's called AIDS, um, to be gay meant that you had AIDS. Mm -hmm. And so there was this high identity of being gay with having AIDS. Basically, the population, even um, gay men, developed this as part of their identity. Like the stigma. The stigma. And I'll, yeah, and, and, you know, because, um, because of the lack of interest in gay men as a citizens and mm -hmm. as a, as citizens but only interest in gay men as a category and uh, at the time you know Ronald Reagan was president really took a pretty proactive of approach to avoiding mm -hmm. intervening talking about it that's so funny i just read about this today that he had like ignored you know aids yes he just totally ignored it and wanted to pretend it wasn't there. And so then it got associated with being gay. If you were gay, you had HIV. Mm. So I'm thinking about this early on in my year. In fact, when I applied to my graduate school, I, I put in that I was interested in loss and change. And I wish I had that, what I had written. Um, it would be good to reflect back upon it. Like, what was I thinking then? But um, anyway, so I'm thinking about this pretty early and was part of a group that had an um, AIDS forum. And so we had a day of speakers and, you know, trying to bring this to be, um, you know, more part of our academic and our focus as budding psychologists. So then I was starting to think about my dissertation. And I want to do loss and change. And I thought, you know, I think I'll go look up some statistics. And actually, I did this in my head. I thought, let's just say if... Um, 10% of the population is gay, or whatever it was. So it was 240 million. Mm -hmm. So I cut that in half to 120. And then at that time, 100,000 people, roughly 100,000 people were infected by HIV, which is a very low percentage of gay men. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, right? Back in the day. Very low percentage. Mm -hmm. But there's this low percentage of gay men who actually have or are infected with HIV. And there's this assumption that everybody who's gay has HIV. And I thought, hmm, there's something wrong with that. And then I said, I just looked up articles on, is anybody studying the non-infected? Mm -hmm. And I found seven articles. One scholarly research article and um, the rest were personal stories or um, anecdotal things written by different uh, medical professionals. But, For like awareness? Yeah. Just thinking about, yeah, what about, and there was, so there was nothing. I thought that mm -hmm. was really interesting. So then I decided to, I would interview um, a small group. I interviewed 20, 20 people. I interviewed 20 people who were negative, and I did a developmental history mm -hmm. about identity and personal loss and then the collective loss, mm -hmm. who they were identifying with, how they identified with them, themselves. And, of course, I found that um, there was a, a, what do you call that? Boy, I'm losing. Hmm? It was not a statistical study. It was, an, it was not mm -hmm. anecdotal. It was a narrative study. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, what I found is that this group of people, at least 
the information that people could take further in research were extremely at risk for infecting or isolation completely. And a lot of other things came out in the, you know, the, the point of a qualitative study is to um, present ideas that other people could take on in research. But since there was no information that I could take on in research, I decided, well, let's find out what's going on. Mm-hmm. So, um, no one, uh, you know, and the focus, of course, is you want to stop this disease. You don't want people to get sick and all, everything went into that. And I think we missed an opportunity um, to do something collectively related to healing, not just for the individual, but for that community. And some of the positive things that came out of HIV um, over the course of that time was the many people who came to work together positive or negative, the ability to talk frankly about intimacy and, and so forth. So some, you know, positive things came out, but many, many people died for no good reason. But I think at the same time, you know, it built, even though it was negative in the beginning, it built some kind of awareness. Absolutely. You know, and it, unfortunately, like they died, but I think it helped to contribute to our understanding if we chose to see it. Oh, exactly. Yeah. That's what I was trying yeah. to say. That yeah, and I will say that any community will resist proposed restrictions. Mm-hmm. Like there was a big hullabaloo about closing the bathhouses in San Francisco. Yeah, and I thought, where's the emotional intelligence here mm-hmm. <laughs> about? Because um, it was becoming more clear about the sexual transmission of HIV. Yeah. But that really isn't our topic. Um, mm-hmm. That's part. That's why I. I've come to this place and I would see my own work as a psychotherapist is helping people um, surrender is and letting go, accepting loss is um, being at peace with reality. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean that you succumb to reality. You come to accept it as as it is and then we can read we arrange, we can re-engage what's true, even though we can't change it. And so, of course, everything, let's say, take the HIV thing, you know, everything was really focused on changing it at first. And then I think over time, the acceptance of the reality grew to become peace with this, at peace, relative peace with this reality. And that was after, you know, Reagan left office and People are evolving, um, you know, they're protesting, um, you know, they're protesting the government denial of this um, and for medical care, for mm-hmm. treatment and, and everything and for research. So um, I think the tide turned when people were able to talk about it and say, yeah, this is what's true and this is what we need to do. And now we know anybody can get, get HIV. Um and it's through transfusions, drug use, intravenous drug use, and, you know, intimate sex. Mm-hmm. So, And also, I guess, like, with anything, right, like, it's definitely hard when people are treated as, like, lepers of society. I mean, like, exactly. that's, like, scarlet letter, you know? Yeah. It's, you right, wear so you're going to get around. mad and you're going to protest. Yeah. You're going to say, don't close our bathhouses. And I think, like, the truth is, like, even with, like, Black Lives Matter right now, you know, that's been going on forever, like some aspect of that. Mm -hmm. But I also think um, 
that it takes a lot of time to kind of to get over our fears mm-hmm. or to even acknowledge them sometimes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, to be comfortable to look at them when right. sometimes we are driven by them. Yeah, I think that the reason I think loss and change are so important in our day and age is because we um, have been in a transition for a long time. Yeah. We've been in a transition since someone mentioned climate change. I think politically we've been in a transition since Ronald Reagan. Um, I think, well, let's not talk about economics. Uh, just really... <laughs> really not good about that, but um, in a transition since the free speech movement, since Martin Luther King, Mm -hmm. because people start talking and start saying what's true. Um, And what we have now is two years of, I think more than two years at this point of a pandemic, real clear evidence of, of climate change, division, social unrest. Some people were heading for a civil war. I think we're already partially Mm -hmm. in one. We're in the skirmishing part hoping it doesn't go that way. And divisions come when we're afraid. So, for example, this conservative reactiveness that we have um, is very much related to resistance of a change. There's fear. And I would say I think the fear is about um, loss of white privilege, Mm -hmm. white positioning. I think that's really at the base of it, I don't think it's conscious to most people because they can, you know, they can deny and rationalize out of it, but that's what's really true. And it's a, you know, um, that kind of fear, a loss of identity is a really deep reptilian fear because it's very much related to survival. Yeah. And so, like, if you looked at the trauma literature, um, people were in disasters. The first thing they do is they have this protective denial. And people, like, let's say if your little town is wiped out by a flood or something, like just happened in Kentucky, people will go back as if it's still there. And one of a new intervention that's happening related to these uh, big traumas is keeping communities together in their sheltering things and trying to rebuild communities so people um, can maintain those relationships. But that... You know, that going back, it's like you don't even recognize that your house is wiped out and, you know, nothing's there. Mm-hmm. Um, and you start doing the same things. You start expecting things. You know, you want things to go back to way they, the way they are. And things don't go back to where they are. They move forward in process with what's true. Yeah. And I think we're really in that now in so many ways. I mean, think of the assumptions that we've made about our health and our freedom to walk around amongst the germs and, you know, not mm-hmm. get sick and that the doctor would take care of us. And we've seen, if we're aware, close to the collapse of our medical system, mm-hmm. you know, and collapsing in some places, like some of that roof is just, you know, caving in, you know, when you see uh, hundreds of people on gurneys outside of a hospital in New York, you know, something's off there. Yeah. And, and it's been off for a while. And that was yeah. kind of the last ringer to I think, make it clear to all of us if we choose to see. You bring up so many amazing points. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to just go back a little bit. Sure, I really agree with you. I think when we are afraid, and many of us Mm -hmm. are afraid, I'm I'm afraid at, like, different moments in my life about different things, you know? Mm -hmm. 
But I think when we are afraid, we are more likely to believe untruth and see untruth than the truth. And I think that's a problem with, you know, like what they say on social media is that lies Mm -hmm. spreads faster than the truth. Like almost a hundred times faster. Like people want to believe these lies and it's harder to sift through those lies to figure out what is the truth because there's more lies out there. Well, not only that, I, I totally agree with that. I, I think, um, you know, I talked to a number of different people. I even belong to a, a group of medical uh, psychologists that mm-hmm. we talk about, you know, what these things are. And everybody focuses on the most disastrous thing that could happen because evolutionarily speaking, we're designed to survive. And it is true that I think someone made up this formula. I can't cite who it is. It takes 10 affirmative things to counteract the impact a negative thing has in your brain and how you think. And so the more frightened we become, the more we look for disaster to confirm the fear because we think that's, you know, that's just because we have to prepare. And so you have the survivalists, you have these militias um, coming up, you have um, the skirmishes that come up. I would see these skirmishes in the Civil War, like when 10 people get shot in Buffalo and they're mostly black, or the the kids in Uvalde who are mostly Hispanic, that other trauma in El Paso, Texas at the wall, Walmart, all Mexicans. Um, and then other random things too. Yeah, you know, I never mind all the Muslims and the Jews have been in our country have been victimized by these um, mass killings. Not all of them, but you know that certainly is expressive of a certain kind of stress and fear collectively. Mm-hmm. And I think that what I, you know what I know to be true is that the more crowded people feel, the more they believe that there are not enough resources when in fact there actually are, the more frightened and um, ghettoized we allow ourselves to become because we need that kind of protection. And so I think that you're having that kind of splitting now. And unfortunately, we also have a system that is becoming increasingly corrupt, not because people want it to be corrupt, but because of political things that have happened where you can start manipulating manipulating a political system by just taking control of the legal system, like AKA Donald Trump and the Supreme Court and, you know, and the Republican Party not responding to um, judges that, um, say, Barack Obama or other Democrats had nominated. Um, so anyway, but that's not really mm-hmm. what we're talking about either. But it is a little background as to why we're so stressed. And then climate change. Um, I think that since we are a collective, we are one psyche. That's how I see things. We have our individual lives. We are one psyche. Um, Climate change is terrifying us. And I don't think we're really aware of it because there's all that denial, as you said. People will, you know, spread these lies or deny because it's too frightening not to. It's more frightening to... It's more frightening to face the truth than it is to tell a lie that makes us be in deeper trouble. <laughs> it is. So, Do you feel like these, like, disasters or even 
you know, minor catastrophes, which seem much bigger in our lives, do you feel like it, it leads to the loss of our identity if we don't deal with it or if we don't address it? What a brilliant question. I, I think you've answered the question. I would say absolutely. The more uh, traumatized Sorry, my cat we are, is going nuts on the, on the microphone. Well, she loved you. <laughs> um, you know, the more traumatized we become, the more we have to cope with these external things and the internal stress that goes on. Who has time to know who they are? Yeah. You look and see who you're going to be safe with. Um, so, I mean, how many Democrats talk to Republicans? <laughs> mm -hmm. And we've lost that whole, because we identified, I think, more as a nation. Now, this was excluding marginalized communities like any people of color, but there was a sense, at least when I was young, that um, we were Americans, and even if we didn't agree with someone, we connected with them, we argued. We had the education to argue and the time. We were educated to think critically, and I don't think that happens very much at this time. Do you feel like in your practice you see a lot of that personal loss? And, and I think in our last year you talked about um, small traumatizations. Yes. Do you feel like it's a consistent topic in how we live our lives that we haven't either addressed or let go of what's hurt us? Well, right. I think we're in a um, an ongoing collective trauma. Mm -hmm. So it's everybody's affected by COVID. Everybody's affected by the manipulation of the economy. Everybody's affected mm -hmm. by the you know the negativity that passes as normal. Um, interchange <laughs> or even like the kind of health care we're getting yeah, and the kind <laughs> right? of hair you know we just uh, and you know when you're the thing for people who are traumatized whether it's an individual trauma and i don't think any trauma is really truly individual mm -hmm. but it's stored in that person's uh, body mind spirit um i think that um our assumptions about how to be safe in the world are vastly challenged and that's the main thing about trauma loss and then eventual change is that our assumptions are shattered. I mean, just imagine uh, people in Kentucky and or Dallas, even that terrible flood they've had, um, that their homes were safe to go to. Like Dallas, when mm -hmm. the hell does Dallas have a flood? I mean, that's not really what they what happens for Dallas. And then, you know, suddenly now people could be phobic about being flooded out because well, we're not as safe as we thought. And I would say related to this country, which I'm not an expert on, you know, the collective voice of this country, but, you know, Americans are, they're people who identify with the dominant culture, which you can be, you know, part of the dominant culture. You can be not part of the dominant culture, but you could still identify it, which is the American dream. Americans are exceptional. We're safe until 9-11. Mm -hmm. um, the privilege, the, I mean, there's so many things we, we assume as just as Americans. And so, and our government is honest. So you see, that assumption is being battled right now, but it's not being addressed with any kind of critical thinking or emotional intelligence, just being reacted against. And the people who do the most reacting that we hear about um, wouldn't want to talk about it. 
but they're because they're in that space. Like I like to think of that they're in a space as opposed to uh, you know uh, labeling someone as this or that. But that state, that space where I mean, let's say a Trumpian space. If you're a, a Trumpian, you know that's pretty rigid. Mm-hmm. Or white evangelicals very rigidly by their code of what's right, and that, of course they want to impose it on everybody else. And I really feel like the worst thing is not talking about it. Like, mm-hmm. even the way, like, in the different generations, in the 50s, 60s, you know, 90s, 2000, 2020, we talk about things more. And sometimes it's unpleasant, but I think it's that we've made progress from the 1950s home where the women always wore the apron, you know? Oh, I think that's true. Like, we... I mean, just stuff I hear on the radio. I, sometimes I think about, oh, my God, you mm-hmm. never hear someone say darn on the radio when I was a kid. But, of course, much more extreme language is used. Um, but I wonder, we're talking about stuff. We have mm-hmm. information. We're naming things. But I'm not sure how effective our talking about stuff is. Mm-hmm. Because if you listen to the news carefully, when you listen to your friends, everybody talks in terms of fear. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, I mean, like the I think media thrives on fear. That's well, yeah, why that's how they make it. money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And then there's, you know, cable news of, you know, any stripe, you know, uses a rather biased um, to the extreme of actually lying um, to foment that kind of fear because people will keep coming back because it's entertaining. Mm-hmm. It, it tickles a nerve in a certain way. Yeah. And, kinda, it, it, and I don't think it gives reassurance. I think people just get more agitated. No, but maybe it's a kind of like an addiction. Like we are addicted to the things that like, you know, feed our fear sometimes. You know, when we've forgotten the other too. What a good idea. I think that's a great point. Um, I think we can become addicted because we need to pay attention to our fear. Just like the story I was telling you earlier, mm. what I was not paying attention to. Yeah. Um, but it can become addicting because it's, when you think about internal rumination, mm-hmm. you have that from cable TV. They're always promoting a certain kind of rumination by going over the same thing over and over again and adding new details and mm-hmm. more lies and more intrigue. And so you turn off your TV or your radio and you're still thinking that way. And rumination is habitual, if not addictive. Mm-hmm. It is. And sometimes it's like we can be so unaware of what's going on if it goes on too long. Well, right. It's, you know. Yeah. It's people confuse information with news with mm-hmm. um, commentary. Yeah. Or it's our a, own personal commentary, right? Yeah, like Propaganda. You know, yeah. and like if you listen to cable news, it's all commentary. There's no mm-hmm. new, very little news there. Yeah. And someone else's commentary that we're allowing in, you know. Mm-hmm. I really love the point that you made about like personal loss. And collective loss when you were like describing mm-hmm. when HIV first came out and like the AIDS crisis. Mm-hmm. It kind of reminds me like when I think about that, I think about complex PTSD, which we're beginning to understand more or mm-hmm. like as like the mass population, you know, you probably understand mm-hmm. it more. But like if when you thought when you talk in terms of loss, it really makes the point that I think anything can hurt us. Even if it's not understandable, but anything can hurt us. And to be aware of that. And it's okay with what's hurt you if it hurt you. Yes, exactly. I was once, just a little sight, I was once um, subpoenaed to 
testify for a, a client of mine who was in a lawsuit with a large national organization and um, and was traumatized because of being attacked at work. Mm-hmm. And the lawyers kept asking me, well, did it really happen? And I'm like, I wasn't there. I have no idea, but it happened to her, to them. Yeah. And, you know, that's what you, you treat. You teach, treat damage. And they're like, well, we're not, a, we're not responsible for that damage if it didn't happen in our place. I think that's, you know, that's how we've run. We live on a very space-time level. Um, and it's, I'm certain that it did happen, even mm-hmm. though I wasn't there. But I wouldn't know that anyway. Or the way, like, our society wants to know, how bad was it? You know, they right, want to exactly. see physical signs of your hurt mm-hmm. when sometimes hurt doesn't have physical signs, you know? Oh, that's right. Yeah, the whole bad, that's especially with psychological yeah. issues and trauma, uh, particularly is, you know, that was only blah, blah, blah. You shouldn't feel that way. Or that was only once. The assumption, right? Yeah, exactly. So, Dr. Farnbach, how can we, you know, knowing what we know and knowing what you, you know, you describing to us, like, what can hurt us? And it sounds like many things can hurt us. How can we be safe in the world? Well, I I think what I was trying to get at a a few minutes ago was in terms of the assumptions that many Americans have is that Mm -hmm. we're not vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And it is adaptive. I mean, we have we're not vulnerable in a big way. I would say every person has to assume that they're not vulnerable just to walk out the front door every day. If you didn't have enough denial, you'd you'd never do anything. Um, And I think we've seen movies about people locked up, locking themselves up in a room and, and so forth. Um, So it would be, we have to accept that we're vulnerable because we're human. We're not promised an immortal life. And, the denial of death is necessary to survive, but too much denial of death um, makes you unrealistic and rigid and in, in denial, too, you know, you can do too much, too much denial of death. And mm-hmm. there was a guy named Becker who wrote a book called Denial of Death. I will say it was in the 80s. It's a book I read at that time. Um, it's a really good book about, I mean, even, I mean, the level of consumerism that we have is a denial of death mm-hmm. because we're killing our world. We're, we're overusing. It's just because you can buy it doesn't mean you should. Yeah. We have so much stuff and it's available everywhere. Right. Well, we have denial of death. But, yeah. you know, you go to the grocery store and you've got really beautiful red meat and a, a nice cellophane package. And you have no idea that, you know, someone at some point slit that animal's throat. Mm-hmm. Et cetera, et cetera. It's pretty grisly. I mean, wh- why do migrants work in meat factories? Because a lot of it's a terrible job. Yeah. Because you're close to all of that. Um, so it's accepting our vulnerability, which is, and then it's learning to live with risk. And everybody has a window of risk that's acceptable to them. And I think we need to. Um, grow in greater need to grow greater tolerance of risk Mm -hmm. some people really need to uh, tolerance of the distress that comes from risk um 
Otherwise, you won't live. So, um, for example, I think with the pandemic, now you don't even know what's true, how many people are dying a day and da 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 But there is a shit. And then I think some stupid decisions are being made related to precautions. But I think culturally we're learning to live with this disease, which I think is something like we have to live with climate change and respond to it, but not by trying to build more cooling centers. I mean, mm-hmm. you have to have enough. You've got to make those um, those preparations. But people have to get on the same page about that we're not going to reverse this and we can slow it. And in generations to come, it could revert, but not in our lifetime. This is not a, you know, this is not like getting a first down. <laughs> yeah. And then I think that's what we're seeing too, right? With the pandemic specifically, it's like people are deciding like how much risk they're willing to take for their own lives, mm-hmm. you know? Exactly. At this moment in time, I think that's a really interesting point. And going back to vulnerability, I totally agree with you. But also vulnerability is scary for a lot of people. What well, it is? It's also the younger you are. I mean, mm-hmm. like one thing I said to a friend pretty recently was, boy, when you get older, you sure know how far it is to the ground, you know, if you're going to fall. Whereas if you're younger, falling is not that far. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. How can we make vulnerability less scary? Because a lot of people are so afraid to go there. Well, it's a it's a big question. It's mm-hmm. like now, of course, in the privileged work of being a, a psychologist and seeing people individually and in couples for their stuff, um, you can work on that. And people can become more effective in their worlds when they develop trust in themselves. Mm-hmm. And in their world and, you know, and in their ability to manage the world and to be in relationship with good boundaries with other people, as opposed to reactive shutting down or, you know, reactive self-protection, which is a lot of what we have. And so, you know, that's easy. That's a Mm -hmm. no brainer. Um, I think that um, we need to educate ourselves about the need to heal collectively. And I think that could happen in small communities where there is some level of trust, where there is an openness to hearing things. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, what's her name? Meg Wheatley, Margaret Wheatley wrote a good book called Who Do We Choose to Be? And um, one of the things she talks about is we need to find, develop, find and or develop islands of sanity mm-hmm. where we will be connected to smaller groups of people that can build trust, assess safety, you know, and, you know, it's kind of like starting over in a way. Yeah. Like growing from the little grain, you know, and going outwards. Don't go into, you know, the big sandbag yet. (laughs) Yeah. There's a guy, um, his name is Thomas Hubel. Hope it's okay to mention another Mm -hmm. name. And he's doing a lot of work in um, healing collective trauma. And I've been starting to read some of his things. I I can't speak about it really intelligently, but I think I'm sure I will be familiar because of the way I I have begun to think. Mm -hmm. I think um, appropriate self-care is really important. And that it's so consistent with slowing the pace of our lives down. And I'm not sure if our economy will help us. Like just the thing you were talking about, the overwork in the medical profession and Mm -hmm. how that hurts 
both the professionals providing care as well as the people they're seeing. And it's, you know, become sort of like, a, um, I guess, a factory in a way, you know, time and motion control, basically. And uh, these efficiency things and that takes the heart out of things. Um, but authentic self-care isn't about going to buy 10 new pairs of shoes because you're anxious and upset. It might be, you know, I need a little pick-me-up, maybe one pair of shoes, and I'll take it home and show it to other people and take it back if I don't need it. Mm -hmm. Or the kind of self-care of starting your day intentionally, learning to pace, even in a busy, busy world, because you will always have enough time to get done what really has to be done. Um, and studies have shown, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, a gas, you could put a, this much gas in a container, very small, and you can, you know, open up, you know, put it in a bigger container, it's still going to spread all over. So maybe give yourself a smaller container in terms of pacing. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you really have to run into the grocery store? You know, do, you really yeah. have, do you really have to not take your cart back? Or, you know, like, even with those pair of shoes, right? Mm -hmm. walk yeah right. right or or i love what you said like um what was the second one you know that another thing that i wanted to mention like i don't think we're constantly supposed i mean we're supposed to be multitaskers like it's like almost impossible you well, know like for me when i would practice i would talk to someone type look at the computer screen and, you know, I thought I perfected that, but I was doing a really shitty job at all three. Well, you, you know, just informed us all about research that has been done about so-called multitasking. No one can do two things at once. We do many things in succession. Mm -hmm. And the more we change and the harder, the faster we go, the less efficient we start not doing things well. And, yeah. you know, like uh, students who... Um, and not, not to rag on students, but who think they can listen to their music, check their email, and listen to a lecture all at the same time, they're not correct. In mm -hmm. fact, I don't think electronics should be allowed in classrooms. Yeah, it's like a huge state of distraction. Yeah. You're reading your book, and how many times do you check your text? Or what ping or buzz do you get through your um, watch or something? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I, I taught, and I finally really learn to say everything electronic closed and under your mm -hmm. under your chair um but it took a long time to learn that unfortunately <laughs> but there's also an issue with all this um video presentation to students and the slideshows mm -hmm. and what's really true is that that is not an efficient way to teach because it does not allow a student to engage with the material that's being spoken and they're doing two things at once they're trying to take notes in addition to all the other things they're doing, and also look at that. And so any, every, anything they get is is information, only information. And it's so fast sometimes. Yeah, yeah and so fast, right. Yeah, you're better off listening and looking at the slideshow later. <laughs> you know, like, I would take notes, and then I would have to, like, listen to the whole uh, lecture again mm -hmm. to take better notes. Exactly. And stop at moments that I didn't understand. Right. You know, it's just, like, not physically possible yet. Mm -mm we're in this mode of rushing and you know i really like what you said about like the collective healing 
And I'm wanting to ask you like a directional question, you know, and you mentioned self-care. Like, is it possible if people are in the collective healing and there's so many advocates, can you go backwards to personal healing or is it best to go into for the collective healing, working on yourself first and then towards the collective healing? Do you I understand would the question? <laughs> yeah, I get it. I think it all happens at once. The mm-hmm. collective won't heal unless enough of us heal personally. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, people who theorize about, let's say, not just energy, but, yeah, energy, do suggest that, um, and I think this has been demonstrated, um, that it is people who meditate are balancing out that collective energy, for one thing. So people who... Um, take care of themselves are going to value themselves more and they're going to be kinder to other people if they're taking care of themselves. They're not going to, um, you know, overstress themselves. They'll learn how to pace. And so self-care is, it's a combination of indulgence, meditation, mindfulness, exercise, and good nutrition. It's, and many other mm-hmm. things, you know, prayer for some people and, yeah. and so forth. Um, so I think it happens at once. It's it's kind of like also that hundredth monkey thing. Um, uh, Ken Kesey, I think, or Ken Keys, Ken Kies, um, that when a certain number, when a hundred monkeys started washing their vegetables, monkeys all over the world started washing their vegetables. And um, there are many examples of that. Now, if you live wholly in the space-time world and don't believe that we're energetically connected, that's going to make no sense at all. It's like they mm-hmm. must have had a radio or something or, you know, someone did an in-service and showed all the other monkeys how to you know, yeah. wash their vegetables. But um, we do collectively interact with each other on an, uh, an energetic and mm-hmm. unconscious level. Or even like, I mean, there's so much that we don't understand. Right. You know, and believe it or not, there's so much that hasn't been proven either and sometimes you just can't prove it you know and the essence of maybe just knowing you know a comment I mean um, two words that I was thinking of when you're kind of going through you know what you were saying is it's okay you know I, I feel like we live in a society right now where balance you know some people are thinking about it but balance is cons- it's not even like addressed you know, I think it's okay to slow down. It's okay to do one thing at a time. It's okay to feel what you feel. Right. That's essential. You know, like, it's okay. And I think we don't have to do multiple things at once. We don't have to, you know, accomplish, like, someone else's success if we don't really want that. That's right. And that's a, um, that's a radical move for so many people. It, it, and it's hard. Because we're yeah. very conditioned. And, you know, the American myth is, you know, it's the Marlboro man. Do it yourself. Kill all the villains or and stand on the top of the mountain like you've gotten there. And um, it, we still take that in. Because very, in, like Western society is more about the individual. It's more about, as opposed to the communal collectiveness. That's very general yeah. of, you know, Eastern thought or Eastern influences. That, you know, one can identify enough with their com- community and still be themselves. And identifying with their community helps them be themselves. Because I think, we, you know, I'm thinking mostly of this country. And probably, you know, of course, I'm very influenced by what I listen to. And mm-hmm. We're going in the opposite direction of any of the wonderful things you said about balance. I think 
that is like, would you talk about um, healing collective trauma? That's a, a number one part of it is finding balance. Exactly. Like within and then outside, you know? Yeah. But sometimes if you don't know where to start, start mm -hmm. where it's easier for you. Mm -hmm. Because that may change your own energy. Mm -hmm. You know, this is something that I like, and I, I really feel like, and I know I would, you feel this way too, but that we're all connected, right? And we yeah. said this multiple times on the show, but even like when I see like a homeless person on the street, you know, sometimes I, I wish we had a better solution in Santa Cruz, right? Mm -hmm. And when I see someone peddling, you know, in the middle of the highway, sometimes I give them money, you know, sometimes I don't. Can I ask you something? Mm -hmm. how, did the, how do you, if you can say honestly, how do you feel when you see that? I feel ashamed. Yeah. I feel it's very hard for me to look at them. Yeah. And I know they're asking for something that they really need. I feel ashamed that they have to live like that. And I feel ashamed that I, I don't give them more. But something right. that I've also been doing is that when I see them, I also pray for them. Because, you know, that prayer, I feel like I'm, I say it for them, but it helps my own soul, too. Well, I, it took me a long time to um, acknowledge something in myself, which was, I am so annoyed by this. I, you know, and I, I think most of us mm. are, which doesn't mean I'm annoyed by that person and their condition. In fact, when I finally accepted, I'm really annoyed like this, and I don't like people sprawled all out over the sidewalk, you know, and, and so forth. Um, I try to accept them. I, the message that's there, I say a prayer too. Mm -hmm. And I just have to admit, you know, I don't like it. I mean, I, but they, we are all citizens. Yeah. And I feel ashamed I don't like it either, right? It's yeah, like <laughs> right. No, no, really. I'm admitting it. Yeah. But yeah, no, I can't stand it. You know? But on the other hand, it's not any single person that I can't stand. Yeah. Um, it's just so hard to see. And then you see their struggle, right? right? And then you feel the way you do. The guilt, too. Yeah. Well, and this is another stigmatized group. But mm -hmm. I will say... I am writing this poem. I'm mostly keeping it in my head. And it's entitled, The World is Not Your Effing Oyster. And I, res I reserve stanzas of this poem for people who say, take up two spots in the parking lot. Mm -hmm. You know, they're straddle things, like in a crowded parking lot, like yeah. down, downtown. For um, those people who sit next to you in a cafe and conduct in a loud voice with their... Um, speaker on a meeting they're having without any concern for anybody who's around um, i have a new one every day those are two big ones or walking through a cloud of marijuana smoke on the street mm -hmm. you know college students or whatever and yeah that's the same as having an, op an open uh, container of alcohol it's like other people inflict really obnoxious things on us and we let it go Everybody's really screaming about the homeless. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a group in Santa Cruz called Take Back Santa Cruz. They have a website and, you know, a lot of complaining there. And it's it's hostile. And these people are, are citizens. And some of us believe we are all children of God, children of love. So, mm -hmm. But think about all the other things that irritate you. Um, and if you get a good idea, you can call me or text me with a stanza for my poem. 
There's so many. Oh, cigarette butts on the beach. That's another one. Cigarette butts anywhere. Yeah, or the world needles, is not right? your effing oyster. Yeah, or needles. Yeah, well, yeah, that too. Yeah. Anyway, I'm so sorry to, to go off like that, but the homeless no. do the the situation in the point that you bring up, bring, being honest about it. Yeah. You know, when we can say it, when we can look at it, can we understand like what could be possible or what we could do individually? Well, what's really happening is a a homeless person is a a mirror of our own vulnerability mm -hmm. that we will not admit because it's <clears throat> Mostly circumstances, mental illness, what have you, um, in people's lives that put them there. And so that is a terrifying thing. And so we stigmatize them. We just a total projection mm -hmm. of where we could be right back on them. Yeah. And then there's management of behavior and healing the problem. That's a beautiful point because no one is better than the other. I mean, no. that's the assumption that people we should all be really wary of or be aware of that no one is better than the other. And quite honestly, right, we could all be that person that we don't want to look at. That's right. You know? For like, the grace of love. Yeah. For the grace of divine love, we all could be that person. Exactly. At any moment's time, you know, like mm -hmm. a collective bunch of decisions could put us in that same situation mm -hmm. too. Right. So I, I think just to add one little bit to the question, what do we do now? I think we have to learn how to notice how we're feeling and stop for a feeling. And please know, I'll say this twice, feelings are not facts. Feelings are not facts. So when I feel irritated at either the people are smoking marijuana, they mm -hmm. have to walk through the smoke, or a, a homeless person you know, that is in a distressed state, even if I'm irritated or don't like it, that's giving me information about what's true. Mm -hmm. And what's true underneath it, as you say, is shame, fear, and there was one other thing I can't remember. And um, yeah, all, all those feelings. And if we, that mm -hmm. we can manage, that we can manage. And then you can see a person as a whole person, whether or not you like what they're doing, like who they are like what they're saying, but have the feelings and name them. Mm -hmm. But most of us skip the part, just react out of feelings. The impulse. The impulse, right. And as you say, you, we're going too fast. Yeah. For that. I love what you said, that feelings are not facts. Because I had a, a moment of my own feelings, and I wasn't even aware I was like feeling like that. And I was, like, feeling kind of badly about myself, you know, mm -hmm. like, maybe I'm not making enough progress, kind of like that, like, you know, Debbie Downer aspect of my brain, right? And I was sitting in the calm waters of Cape Cod, just sitting there, like, I like to just sit there for, like, an hour. It's, like, my favorite thing, right? And everything felt okay. And, like, I finally was able to name those feelings that I was having, yeah. And at that moment, it didn't feel like a fact. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, I wasn't sure if that was truth or the untruth. Right. Well, you were that bad person or that yeah. failing person. Mm -hmm. And instead, you're, a, a thought always accompanies that, either before or after. I'm not doing the right thing, and then that feeling keeps going. But what's true is 
you know, underneath the feeling, you're judging yourself as not a, as a bad person or what, I don't remember how you said that, but underneath that, there's a feeling. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that feeling was for you, but can also be, well, I'm afraid or um, I'm sad or I'm scared or I'm doubting myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you get to the feeling, you can manage those mostly by soothing and then you can think about it later. Yeah. And then it comes down to whatever it is, it's okay. That's right. It's okay. I mean, you, you know? can't argue with what's true. It's just yeah. true. I mean, you can lie and resist it, but, you know, there is a baseline of what's true. Mm-hmm. And so let's just say for uh, convenience is that what was true for you in that moment uh, was I am in, I am in distress. That's all you need <laughs> about what I'm doing, what I'm going through. And that's what you need to deal with is mm-hmm. the distress. Yeah. And whatever that was about. I really feel like we live in a society where we are afraid of, to talk about anything pertaining to any kind of death. Yeah. But I think the truth is, and you mentioned it er- earlier, death, as horrible as it may seem to you, is also a beginning. Well, it's, it is also... There's tragic death. There's off-time death, mm-hmm. like, say, when a kid dies or something like that, or tragic accidents and things like that. And that's a different kind of thing than aging into your ultimate dying. Mm-hmm. And our brains fortunately give us a strong sense of mortality for a long time. Like, that's why off-time deaths are so horrible, is that it's too soon for, say, a six-year-old to grieve the death of one of their parents. Um, and so that becomes a different kind of thing, you, a need you need to take care of probably for quite a long time. But if you can live into your dying, because, oh, I mean, everything is a stage of life mm-hmm. that is, can be fulfilling, or that ought to be. Um, and we're, of course, not talking about the millions and millions, hundreds of millions of people who couldn't even comprehend entertaining these ideas. Yeah. Or even like the death of some aspect of yourself. Yes, Or absolutely. the death of the fears that you have, you know? The death of, excuse me, you know, not feeling depressed and anxious. Mm-hmm. There's so many things, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes, like, I think even though it's so, so hard, I feel like it's another aspect of our journey, like you said. That's right. Well, every change is another aspect of the journey, Mm -hmm. which is we have to come to a point where we say, this is what is happening. How can I embrace this? Mm -hmm. How will we survive this? How can we be safe? What happens if you don't embrace it? Well, you have what we have right now. Mm -hmm. Like, if you don't embrace this, like just that uh, classic case of, you know, some poor people, you know, parents who lost a child and they keep the child's room as a, as a sanctuary or an altar for 10, 15, 20 years. Like there's not processing and, yeah, you know, people say, oh, you got to let go, da, da, da. There's a lot of stuff you don't have to let go of when someone dies, but there are, their physical presence. Yes. Mm-hmm. Memory ongoing inter- intuitive relationship with your child. That does, that kind of thing doesn't make you stuck. 
But yeah, but if you don't embrace the change or deal with the trauma, you'll just be reactive and rigid and have a pretty hard life and maybe make other people's lives hard too. Mm-hmm. I think I always like to keep in mind that, you know, when we speak like this, we're speaking from a place of having enough privilege to even consider these things. And people do have, you know, bona fide spiritual illnesses, mental illnesses, and physical illnesses that would, that need to be treated appropriately. I think we have many primitive ways of treating Mm -hmm. people, but they need to be treated appropriately. So it's not like one would put this intuitively ideal thing on everybody, but it is good food for thought. But I think it's always important to acknowledge, you know, where we come from, which does not include the lives of so many people. So it's, it's, I just like to, you know, acknowledge that. I think it's really important for us to understand our perspective. I have to be thankful for where we are. Well, even with our own struggles. Yeah. It it does no good to be ashamed of Mm -hmm. where one is. It's just use it for, for good. Yeah. Be grateful. That's our power. And don't live too much for for acquiring privilege or retaining it. Mm-hmm. You're going to miss a lot if you do. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> wow, Dr. Farnbach, thank you for joining me on today's show. That was a really, really interesting conversation. Thank you. Well, thanks for asking me. I always love talking to you. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for listening to Lost or Found with Dr. Michelle Choi. If you're loving the podcast, please tell your friends, subscribe, and leave us a great review. And follow Michelle on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. For more information, visit our website, drlostorfound.com.